listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, I hope you've had a wonderful break. This is my first uh, Sunday back this year, and I hope you had great holidays, and I hope you had fabulous gifts. Uh, I received a gift that I'm going to share with you. The reason I'm going to share it with you is that it's specifically linked to preaching. Uh, the person who gave me this gift has asked that they may remain anonymous, and that may become more apparent as the gift is revealed. But to just set this up, one thing that is often mentioned uh, by people who visit uh, is how much water I drink during sermons. And even on the podcast, uh, we do have the occasional email from people who are trying to work out what the strange sound is and how we're making a point and stop at this crucial time and then stop and what is happening. So gifts are love, it's a love language. Um, So I'm gonna choose to see this as a love language, but um, I was given this by someone who may be in the office, I'm just saying that. Uh, but uh, it's, an, it's, it's an improvement upon this, and <laughs> now I did put it on, um, and there was water in these two bottles, and I was utterly drenched when I did put this on, and um, yeah, so there would be people listening to this podcast right now, like in mystery of what this is. I'm not going to tell them what it is. It's just <laughs> fabulous, uh, but... Um, you know, there you go, give it to my brother, you can keep it there, (laughs) he he wasn't, he didn't give it to me, oh look at that, fantastic, it barely even fits on your head, it's just, okay, let's open the Bible and segue awkwardly, we're going to open the book of Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 17, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, sending a message of encouragement, of instruction, of wisdom. Verse 17 says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We're going to come back to this, but I just wanted to set this up, and this is my first sermon for the year, 
And inevitably at the beginning of the year is a time when we look and reconnect with what is God's vision for us as individuals, as a church, as the people of God. There's extra potency to this year because you've got the wonderful year of 2020. So many sermons will be written, I predict, 2020 vision in 2020, a year but also a decade. And there's a natural excitement at the start of any year, fresh possibilities, new starts. But most of all, the excitement that I sense is the excitement of what God will do this year. At the end of last year, reflecting on how God had moved amongst us, we were able to tell stories, recount testimonies. There were people at Red who came to faith for the first time, people who came back to faith, prayers answered, God building his kingdom amongst us. And looking forward, that sense of excitement of what are the good things that he has in store for us, particularly for this service, what are the good things he has in store for the 5 p.m.? And what I want to do is I want to take this excitement, this anticipation that we naturally have at the beginning of a year, and I want to add a crucial biblical perspective that will help us grasp what God has for us in the year to come. For January isn't just a vision-enriched environment just in churches, but businesses, sporting teams, individuals, news, resolutions, families, people set goals and look forward wanting to move towards a better future. And one of the ways that leaders inspire and grow the people who are under them, following them, is through using vision. Vision is something which we use to motivate, to inspire, and to unite. My first ever ministry training that I went to when I was 18, the first talk, I think from memory, that I heard was one on vision. And from memory, in that talk, they told a story from the business world, and I heard it in that that talk, and then I heard it multiple times again over the next few years. And it's a story of the beginning of the early days of Apple. And Steve Jobs, who started the company being this visionary, realized he needed someone to do the back-end stuff, do the stuff that he was not good at. He approached the CEO of Pepsi-Cola, John Scully, and the famous line he used on him, where he went to him, is he used this technique of using vision, the big picture. He said to him, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? Classic vision pitch. What's often not told in the story is that Scully did come with him, didn't change the world, he actually sacked Steve Jobs, but we'll leave that detail out. Now, also in that sermon, there was also a verse that was given, and it's a verse that's prevalent when we talk about the subject of vision, and interestingly, even you'll see this in leadership uh, books, and this is the verse, it's actually from Proverbs 29, verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. You see, we respond to vision because it offers us a bridge across difficulties, from stagnation to an ideal future. Ideals become rallying points, unifying our efforts towards a future goal, an ideal state. Without it, an endeavor seems to die and fade away. We need a vision to help us bridge that gap to get to go where we want to go. Now, many times in history, people are bereft of vision. 
Nations have no better future to dream towards. People work in jobs where it's absolutely mundane, where there seems to be no purpose. People do the same jobs that their great-grandparents did, their grandparents, their fathers, their mothers. They do the same thing and nothing changes. There is no vision. Now, our world, interestingly, isn't necessarily lacking vision. In fact, our culture is filled with vision and visions for your life. In fact, we're inundated with visions through billboards, banner ads, Instagram posts, pictures, stories, blog articles, all positing to you ideal states for your life. Now, some of this is brilliant and helpful. There's actually fantastic things that you can gain in life through planning and organizing and pointing towards a mountain. As a leader, I've seen the power that vision can be to rally people. But many of the visions actually that we're surrounded by, I would actually say almost drowning in, actually promoted by people who don't necessarily have our best interests at hand. Many of them actually want to sell you a vision because then they want to sell you the plan that you can pay for in monthly installments that come out of your credit card. So yes, people without a vision perish, but with too many visions, people are paralyzed. And Ryan preached last week, and he talked about at the beginning of the year when we have news resolutions, we can go between these two poles. One, where we set visions, we have plans, and we try and bridge the gap between our current reality to where we want to go. But then also there can be this other extreme where instead of this pole of performance, we actually have this pole of passivity and paralysis. In the face of what seems an impossible gap or just too many visions for your life, too many expectations. Now, some of you might find yourself on the performance end, you're already well into your New Year's resolutions, you love planning, you love vision, other people might just be completely overwhelmed and just find themselves going day by day, existing. I think actually most of us go between the two, we're actually swinging between those two poles. Yet we're still drawn to vision. There's something inside of us which contains a yearning for an ideal state, a better future, something that points to a deeper spiritual reality. Stepping back, we can actually see that there's some cultural baggage that we bring to the idea of vision, that we as humans can make the ideal states happen, that we can do it through our own strength. Yet when we're disappointed and discontented, by the fact that our individual lives or perhaps even our nation or our culture doesn't look like the ideal, that discontent still points to something deeper, haunting us that something greater is out there that is just out of reach. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter three, verse 11, it tells us that God has set eternity in the human heart. The Amplified Bible, which is a Bible tool to expand the meaning of verses, translates that verse from Ecclesiastes in this way. He, God, has also planted eternity, a sense of divine purpose in the human heart. Listen to this line. A mysterious longing which nothing under the sun can satisfy except God. Maybe this is why we live in the most prosperous time in history, where actually peace is at record highs, 
Affluence has never been like this. Violence is at the lowest levels. Yet we're still haunted that something's not right. People are frustrated and angry. We're wanting something that we see and long for, yet we actually can't reach in our own strength. The Amplified Bible continues. Yet man cannot find out, comprehend, or grasp what God has done, his overall plan from the beginning to the end. So we long for something. This is what is sold to us, this image that here's your current reality and here's the exercise plan, the work plan, the vision for a nation or a country or whatever, a political ideology, there's the ideal state. But underneath this, when we look at Ecclesiastes, we realize that actually that vision is a longing, that the ideal state is actually echoes of heaven. And so our understanding of vision as we understand it as just a plan, a rallying point begins to run aground here. We long for an ideal state. We're animated and motivated by vision. It can be a good thing. Yet as Ryan showed us last week, it's good until we face circumstances that we can't overcome. And the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that we can't even see the whole picture. And so we can read Proverbs 29, 18. Without, where there is no vision, the people perish. We can read this through a wrong lens. Seeing this more as a corporate statement. However, as we deeply examine this verse and actually look at what are the original words saying, it begins to show a deeper and richer meaning. This is how, this is the King James Version, what we're reading now, where there's no vision, the people perish. The New International Version, the NIV, translates it in this way. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. Now, I can imagine this being on one of those corporate posters where there's no vision that people perish, those sort of corporate posters that were popular, which then sort of got turned into like memes. Uh, I could see that on one of these, perhaps a bunch of people rowing or climbing a mountain. But I can't see an office where this would fit nicely, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. Maybe in the kitchenette, as people have too much sugar in their tea. I don't know. But what actually is happening here is that the key word here to begin with is vision. Vision is translated in the NIV as revelation. And when we dig into the Hebrew, the actual word is hazon, which comes from the word hazar. And hazon is visions revelation, prophecy. This is actually spiritual sight. This is less a corporate goal that's gonna unify a group of people or a vision of losing 10 kilograms by December. And those things are actually okay, but this is profoundly deeper. For the word hazan and hazar is used exclusively for prophecies in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word that is used to describe the vision that the prophet Nathan has and confronts King David. It's the word used about their prophecies by the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. It's what Daniel uses to describe the the vision he has of God's truth and heaven and the reality that he then communicates to the Babylonian king. 
It's a divinely given ability to see spiritual reality, to gain insight into how God sees the world. Ultimately, this is not just seeing the earthly dimension of reality. It's not downplaying that, but it adds to it. It's a form of sight which sees the spiritual dynamics at play. Another way to understand revelation or hazan is as a light that illuminates the darkness. Hand up here if you know, without thinking about it, I'm going to give you like half a second, whether there is a full moon tonight. Hand up. Half moon. Quasi-moon, no moon. Okay, about three people in the entire building. The historian Jeffrey Blaney, in his book Black Kettle and Full Moon, which describes the life of Australians a century and a half ago, says that one of the key items to have for the Australian household was something that was called an almanac. An almanac was a book which contained a bunch of information. It was like Google bound uh, back then. But the key reason, the, the great information that you wanted to have, which was contained in that book, you would get one every year, and it would explain the cycles of the moon for the next calendar year. Now, before electricity, this was absolutely vital information. If you wanted to go on a long trip, and you were coming back at night, say you were visiting grandmother 20 miles away, and you were riding a horse and carriage back, to be able to see was absolutely essential. Public events, town hall meetings, political rallies, church meetings were all arranged according on nights that had a full moon. The famous or infamous bushranger Ned Kelly, his notorious bank robberies at Uroa and Jerildery were planned skillfully because of Ned Kelly's understanding of the full moon. The success of the government assault upon the Eureka Stockade at Ballarat in 1854, one of the reasons of its success was actually because the government strategically and wisely decided to attack on the night of a full moon, be able to see what they were doing. They had their almanac. And in the same way, Revelation or Hazan enables us to see beyond the darkness of unbelief. You see, having a vision is great, it's helpful. But what we ultimately need is God's vision, God's revelation. And the second part of the verse, when we look at it here, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. It warns us that there's a cost of having no chazon, no vision, no revelation, no prophecy, no insight. The word cast off here in the Hebrew is para. And to cast off restraint is to engage in destructive behavior, thought and action. In the Australian slang, what this means is, without hazan, the people go feral. And see, the world is a dark place because they lack revelation. Sin blinds us spiritually. We jealously guard our own perspectives and are flawed in our vision. And so much of interpersonal relationships, so much the relationships even between nations. Psalm 2 says the nations rage. Why? Because it's all this battle of how I saw it this way, you did this, I see it this way. Flawed perspectives crashing against each other. 
Therefore, in the Old Testament, there was this great desire to see the world as it really was, to perceive the spiritual realities, to see as God sees, to see beyond the dark. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 81, cries out to God, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your instructions. Israel hungered to see clearly. Its desire for God to come back was actually to see through the darkness of sin. And those prayers to actually see were answered in the form of a man called Jesus. And when we understand this, we begin to see that so much of Jesus' ministry is answering that prayer, helping people to see, curing physical blindness, but also spiritual blindness. At the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4, verses 18 19, Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is breaking out in the world, that he's come to bring sight to the physically blind, to the physically vision impaired. Well, there's a picture at night, a night meeting. But actually what he's done is also come to give sight to the spiritually blind. And then his language around the kingdom is that actually heaven and the spiritual reality is now breaking into the earthly reality. But it's not going to be super obvious for those who don't have the right eyes to see. That actually we need to learn to see in a very different way. So whether it's showing his disciples that a poor woman seemingly paltry offering when viewed through kingdom lens is actually worth vast riches in heaven, or seeing that a hopelessly corrupt and hated tax collector was actually a saint in waiting, that the kingdom of God was all around for those with eyes to see. Jesus' ministry was a masterclass in seeing the world through God's eyes. And you know what? That ministry is still on. Jesus is still doing that. Jesus is actually still in the business of opening eyes. There's actually eyes in this room that Jesus wants to open. There's blindness that Jesus wants to overcome now. That's why there's a spiritual battle over our vision. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. So the enemy wants you to either remain blind spiritually to God's revelation, his hazan, or to not realize the access that you actually have to that revelation. The enemy erects strongholds of spiritual blindness because people who have revelation, hazan, actually take ground for the kingdom. And the enemy does not want to see ground taken in your lives, in this city, in this nation. But those who see the world through God's eyes, they learn its ways. They operate within the truest reality, God's reality. You see, if you transform how someone sees the world, you transform the person. And new ways of seeing builds new cultures, fresh ways of operating, and new potentials. The psalmist in 119 verse 37 cries out to God, turn my eyes from worthless things. And this should be our prayer too in order to defeat the enemy's strategy of distraction, which has always been in play 
but is also powerful today. So we need eyes of faith to grasp the power that God has for us. I want to return to the passage that I began at the beginning. I began at the beginning. I read at the beginning from Ephesians 1, verse 17 to 19. I want you to look at this now. I read it before, but now read this, looking for that language of opening of eyes, of seeing, of revelation, of God enlightening us, of looking beyond the spiritual darkness. I'm going to read it again. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. There's that word. So that you may know him better. This is saying perhaps you don't know God as well as you think. Perhaps some of the cliches that you have around God. Perhaps you fear that he actually doesn't really like you. He's perpetually angry at you, perpetually distant or silent. This is Paul praying that the church in Ephesus will get that spirit of wisdom and revelation so they may know God better. Paul continues, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. We live in a time of profound hopelessness. The world is filled with enough bad news stories, both corporate and personal. We live in a time of bad news stories. But what Paul is saying here, that revelation, which enlightens our heart, when not just our eyes see, but actually something about our heart sees, our inner sense of our emotions, our feelings, our desires, who we are inside, needs to actually see the hope that God has that he's actually called us to. Paul goes on, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is being written to a church that feels very powerless. This is a church surrounded by the massiveness and power and performance and majesty of Caesar and the Roman Empire. This is a church with little resources, often facing persecution at worst, and just indifference and ridicule at best. This is a church who does not feel like it has much effect in the world. But what Paul is saying is that he wants revelation to come so that they will actually see the incomparably great power for those who believe. The power, which is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. This is resurrection power, and if raising from the dead is not enough, this is actually the power that seated God, so Christ, at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. This saying God's at the right hand of, Jesus at the right hand of God. You don't need to worry. Actually, it's sorted. I've got this. This is how history ends. Your hope is in Christ. When Jesus died on the cross... He offered you eternal life. He offered you a glorious inheritance to be part of his holy people. And that resurrection power is on offer to you. Oh, that you would see this. So we need revelation to see, first of all, our world with kingdom eyes. We need to see the world as God sees it. To see that actually... God's moving history towards his ends. 
to actually see that our prayers matter. When you see the news and whether it's a, a mass protest on the other side of the world, a natural disaster like a bushfire raging in our own country, the incredible suffering of people under oppressive regimes, we need to see that in the kingdom's perspective with God's revelation, your prayers actually matter than all the armies in the world. We need to look at our church and see it with kingdom perspective. Sure, the narratives of the day may say that the church is fading, that people are less and less interested, but man, they've said that before. And every time they say that, the church rises up again and God does a new thing. We need to believe that at this moment, God wants to renew his church. You being here, what you're doing, this afternoon we had volunteers gathering, that those moments are actually signs of God's heart for the church, that you're actually building something. We need to see God's deep desire for the church and just how powerful she is when she walks in the way of kingdom. You don't need to be super smart. You don't need to be super perfect. Jesus has done all that for you. You just need to be holy, humble, and hungry, and just watch God move. And if you're not there yet, the Holy Spirit's willing and able to pour himself out on you. And the third thing, you need to see God's revelation for your life. So many of us, like barnacles on the holes of a ship, have stories that have attached themselves, scripts given from people close, or even just a generalized sense of what people are saying about us, the audience and the vision of countless other people. But we need to put all of that down and realize that the audience of one eye is the only one that matters, God's eye for you. And God's eye for you saw you, sent his son, that you did not have to die because of your own rebellion and sin. And that he absolutely loves you. That he offers you his salvation. And he saves you for a purpose. God's vision for you is so much richer and deeper that you can see with your own human perspective. That resurrection power in that passage. God hands that to you partner with him. You need to see yourself how God sees you. We are given revelation through word and spirit. The psalmist in Psalm 199 verse 105 says that your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. If a scripture is something that you have struggled with to find revelation in, Pray also with the psalmist in verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. You see, seeing differently takes practice. It doesn't happen always instantaneously. That actually, sometimes it's like riding a bike differently. I read yesterday the story of a rocket scientist who was incredibly smart, and what he's colleagues did was they gave him a bicycle that they built. Now he'd been reading a, he'd been reading a bicycle, he'd been riding a bicycle since he was a little kid, but what they did with his bicycle is they changed it. So when you turned left, the bike actually went the other way and reverse. 
Now they explained it to him. They said, this is what we've done to the bike. It's going to turn the opposite way to what you're used to. So, okay, I've got this. Super smart guy, looked at the bike, worked out how it all worked with its physics and whatever. Gets on it, can't ride it. Every day he practiced. It took him eight months to learn how to ride this bike despite knowing exactly what was going on. His six-year-old son worked it out in two weeks. Why? Because his six-year-old son wasn't so set in his ways and the different parts of his brain weren't set. Eight months to undo something which he intellectually knew. And seeing the world through God's perspective can be like this. Kenneth Bowe writes this around how scripture helps us see God's perspective. The Bible works like a lens, helping us to see everything from God's perspective. The lens doesn't always come into perfect focus the first time we look through it. The lens of scripture is more like glasses we grow accustomed to over time. The longer we wear them, the less we notice they're there. Over time, with practice, his thoughts and perspective become our own. Though they're reflected through the prism of our own unique personalities and lives. Some of you may hear that, but have a deep sense of, man, how I see the world is actually so far from how God, should see, how, how God wants to see it. How I see the world is profoundly affected by spiritual blindness. Man, I don't know if I can wait that long. I don't know if I can learn to ride a bicycle the other way for the next eight months. I need God to move now. What you need is what the author Thomas Kelly called a mass revision of our total reaction to the world. You need your vision completely turned upside down. And Kelly had one of them. After a whole lifetime of actually seeing the world in the wrong way, at the age of 43, God invaded his life, the spirit came in and gave him a vision of the closeness and the kingdom of God and the nearness of the presence of the Holy Spirit, which radically changed how he viewed the world. The Holy Spirit can also do such a radical shift in your life if you're hungry and you're humble. The prophet Joel prayed this, this, this vision that in the future God would pour out his revelation, his vision on all people, not just this special class of people called the prophets. And at the beginning of the church, the beginning of what we're doing here in Acts 2 verse 17, Peter quoted Joel and said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. So what we're gonna do is actually gonna stand now. The band's gonna come forward and we're actually gonna pray that now. We're actually gonna pray that in 2020, God begins to give us his revelation. We're actually gonna pray that at this moment, God actually begins to do a healing work. That the Holy Spirit is here, that the power of God which raised Jesus from the dead and put him at the right hand of God, that actually that power wants to open eyes to actually heal and actually get you to see how the world, how God sees it. So let's pray. Spirit, we ask you to come now. Spirit, we ask you to open our eyes to how God sees. 
Father, we think of that story when Jesus encountered that man who was blind. Strangely, Jesus spat on his fingers and put his fingers on that man's eyes. And the man was able to see and heal him of physical blindness. Jesus, we actually wanna pray that you'll do that now. Spirit, come, heal our spiritual blindness. We need your revelation. We need it as individuals, as your church. We need to see the world through your perspective, through the kingdom lens. We wanna pray off distractions, the things which have taken our focus off you. And Spirit, we focus upon you now. We praise you, God, on your throne. We only wanna gaze and adore and look at your lovingness now. Open our eyes. We ask in Jesus' name.